320 AD, Emperor Licinius of the Roman Empire, he caught wind that a certain group of his soldiers had sworn allegiance to Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. And in the Roman Empire, there was really to be one Lord, and that was to be Caesar. And so not liking what he was hearing, he issued an order that all of his soldiers should renounce any allegiance to Christ and swear allegiance to Caesar as Lord instead. And in one town called Sebast, in what is now modern-day Turkey, there were 40 men who stepped forward and said, we're not going to renounce our faith in Christ. We're going to refuse to bow the knee to Caesar. We are going to remain faithful and loyal to Jesus Christ, for there's one Lord and one Lord alone, and it's not Caesar, it's Jesus. And Licinius didn't like that, and so he ordered that the men be flogged, and they were, then they were brought back before him again, and he said again, bow the knee to me as Lord and renounce Christ. And these 40 men again said, we're not going to bow the knee to you. There's one Lord and one Lord alone, and it's not Caesar, it's Jesus Christ. And so Caesar, in response, ordered that the 40 men be stripped and sent out onto a frozen pond until they should, in his eyes, come to their senses, come back to the edge of the pond, recant their faith in Jesus, and swear allegiance to Caesar. So the 40 men disrobed, and they went out onto the pond. And in the meantime, they ordered that tubs of hot water be brought and placed around the perimeter of the pond and fires be lit next to these tubs to try to entice these men to leave behind their allegiance to Christ and to come to the edge of the pond and to swear allegiance to Caesar. The night went on and on and on and through the night there was only one man of the 40 who left and came back to recant his faith in Christ and put his faith and his allegiance in Caesar. Well, as that one man came back across the ice, there was a Roman soldier who was there who had witnessed all of this And as he saw the one man give up his faith in Christ to come back and swear allegiance to Caesar, the soldier on the side took off his own clothes and walked back out and took the man's place on the ice. And so that night, 40 men died for their faith in Jesus Christ. The question for us is, would we be on the ice? When push comes to shove, and and though we're not at this point in our culture, I think if if we're honest with ourselves, as we evaluate the way things are going and the trajectory of our world and the trajectory of our society and even of our nation, I think we have to ask ourselves, when push comes to shove, are we going to be ready to stand with Christ regardless of the circumstances that we find ourselves in? Daniel, Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael are four young men who were taken captive from their homes and taken captive from everything that they knew and put into a situation where they were being asked essentially to give up everything, to give up their faith, to give up their allegiance to God, to give up their identity as Israelites and to say, no, we are going to now follow after the gods of Babylon and we are going to follow the ruler of Babylon. And they're put in this situation. And we see in the book of Daniel that these four young men, when push came to shove, refused to compromise, but held fast to their faith in Christ. For us, we have lessons that we can learn from their faith. We have lessons that we can learn from their boldness, and that's what I hope to have us do this morning as we look at Daniel chapter 1. So grab your Bibles, if you would, and open them up to Daniel chapter 1, and we're really going to be looking at verses 8 through 20. But just to to catch us up, what's happened to this point, as I just mentioned earlier, Daniel and, and these three, along with many others, had been taken captive, but this wasn't by happenstance or chance or fate or accident. This had really nothing to do with the military might and prowess of Babylon either. It had everything to do with God's sovereignty. Because we read in Daniel chapter 1, verse 2, that God gave Jehoiakim, the king of Judah at the time, into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, into the hand of the Babylonians. So God, in his sovereignty, had given his people over 
and not just his people, but also his city, Jerusalem, and his temple, as the temple would eventually be destroyed. Well, part of giving his people over was giving over Daniel, Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael, part of the the nobility of the Israelite youths at the time, those that were, as the text says, without blemish and of good appearance and had uh, their wits about them and an intellect that made them stand out. God gives them into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, one of the most ruthless and evil and wicked rulers the world had ever known. But what we'll find in the text and what you find in the book of Daniel as you read the whole thing is God did that with intentionality because God never does anything without purpose. And so God sovereignly is placing these young men in this circumstance and in this situation because God wants to use them as part of his sovereign plan to exalt his name and to glorify himself in the face of this pagan and ruthless nation and empire. That's where we pick up in verse 8. These young men had been put into this Babylonian training program. It was a three-year program. And as part of the program, they were to eat from the food that the king himself got to enjoy. They were to eat the food from the king's table and drink the wine that the king himself drank as well. But we read this in verse 8. It says, But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Let's stop there for a moment. Daniel resolved. It's a great word. It's a, a word that speaks of conviction. Daniel determined in his heart, he set his mind to something. He refused to compromise. He instilled deep convictions within himself. And we say, well, what were the convictions? He resolved that he would not defile himself. And that word defile, it has to do with the defilement in relation to his standing before God. To defile yourself would be to make yourself unclean or impure in the eyes of God, which would disqualify an Old Testament Israelite from the worship of God. So even thousands of miles away from his home and stripped away from his temple and stripped away from everything that he knew and away from the Levitical priesthood and away from the sacrificial system and away from his family and away from his identity as an Israelite, Daniel remains faithful to his identity as a follower of God and says, I know that I can't do this because if I do this, it's going to make me unclean before my God and I refuse to do that. So he refuses to defile himself. Well, what would have defiled himself? Two things. Well, number one, The Babylonians had no concept of the Mosaic law, right? So as this food was prepared for the king, they weren't preparing it according to the laws that were laid out in the Old Testament for what Israelites could and could not eat. God had set his people apart as holy and said, as a result of you being distinct and separate and different, there are things that you can eat and things that you can't eat. And he had made that abundantly clear to them in the law. Well, the Babylonians didn't care about that. So the diet that Nebuchadnezzar ate was going to be a diet of foods that were going to be some of them clean, but a lot of them were going to be unclean. So Daniel knew, I can't eat of these things because it would transgress God's law. But the second thing Daniel knew is Daniel knew that this food had first been offered to idols. And what would happen is the the priests, so to speak, of these false gods would take the food and they would take the plates and the platters and they would bring them before the statue of the false god and they would set them before the false god to feed this god. And then they would draw the curtain around the food as if something magical were happening behind the curtain. And then afterwards, they would pull the curtain back. And after the God had finished eating, they would take the untouched plates of food that they had just dropped off. And they would take those plates and they would drop them before the king. And that's what the king would eat, as well as his servants and anyone else that he had invited to eat from his table. Well, for Daniel and his three friends to eat of that food would have, then, would have been for them to participate in the worship of these false gods. So Daniel knows this. Hananiah, Azariah, Mishael, they, they know this and they resolve in their hearts not to make themselves unclean or impure before the Lord. 
we don't have food laws today, and so maybe it's lost on us a little bit how significant this was. But just to, to wrap our minds around it, number one, it, it's important to note that Daniel and his three friends were risking their own lives here in this circumstance. When we read the book of Daniel, we think about the great scene with the fiery furnace and Daniel in the lion's den. But before we ever get to the furnace or the lion's den, they're putting their lives on the line here by refusing to eat the food from the king's table. But the second thing is, and this is not a, a scriptural book, but it's a historical record that we find in 1 Maccabees. Again, this is not God's word necessarily, but it is a, a historical record of what was taking place during the persecution under Antiochus Epiphanes. And listen to what it says here. We find this recorded in 1 Maccabees 1, 62 through 63. It says, but many in Israel stood firm and were resolved in their hearts not to eat unclean food. They chose to die rather than to be defiled by food or to profane the holy covenant, and they did die. So there you have this historical record where these Israelites were willing to die rather than eat unclean food, and they were put to death for refusing to eat the unclean food. And so that's what's going on here. These four Israelite youths, these four teenagers, are refusing to defile themselves before God, and they're putting themselves in a situation where their lives were literally on the line here. As we look at this conviction, as we look at this resolve, we have to understand that there's no way that they make this decision without a robust knowledge of God's word and God's law. It doesn't say anywhere in Daniel chapter one that Daniel and these three knew the word, had memorized the word, had studied the word, had had Bible studies together, did their DBR. It, it doesn't say that anywhere, and yet it drips from the pages. Because to see this level of conviction, to see this level of resolve, to see this level of even awareness that to eat from the king's table would render them unclean before their God, and they weren't willing to do that. It screams to us that these four knew the word, that they knew exactly what God wanted them to do. They knew Leviticus 11 and what God said was clean and what was unclean and what they could eat and what they couldn't eat. They knew Exodus 20, where we read in, in, in the Ten Commandments, the very beginning is all about the exclusivity of our worship to God and God alone. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall bow down before no other gods. They knew Exodus 34, 15, which specifically prohibited that any Israelite should eat the food that had first been offered to idols because if they did, they would be participating in the worship of that idol. These young men were rich and deep in their biblical knowledge and biblical conviction, and here's what that did for them. When push came to shove and the heat got turned up and they were put in a difficult situation, they didn't need to huddle together and say, okay, what are we gonna do? What, what should we do here? This is really hard. We're in a tight spot. How should we respond? They knew exactly what they were going to do. Their depth in the knowledge of the word of God had revealed to them what God's will was for them, and that allowed them to not waver, not question, not compromise, but to stand firm in their convictions. Point number one this morning is this. Know God's word to know God's will. Know God's word to know God's will. If you've ever been whitewater rafting before, you come down to the edge of the river and, and you show up and there's usually a guide there in a large boat and, and he hands out the life preservers and he gives you the helmet and he starts to, to talk through everything that you're going to face and you're, in, you're going to encounter. And he talks about the different levels of rapids that are out there. There's a three, there's a four, maybe we'll hit some fives. It's going to get tough and make sure when you're doing this, here's how I need you to row. Here's how I need you to pay attention. Listen to my voice as we're going along and you're going to be fine. Just lock into what I'm telling you and you're going to be fine. We'll, we'll make it through just, just fine. And then you get in the boat and, and normally when you go on one of these trips, you, you launch in calm water. You get into the boat and you look around and you're going, this isn't bad. 
Why do I need the helmet? Why do I need the life preserver? Well, Christians, for us, that's been so much of our lives. Our Christianity has been launched into the calm water of the roaring rapids that are coming. And we sit there and we look at God's word and we say, well, God, why do I need to take this so seriously? Why, why is it so important that I, I do my DBR? Why is it so important that I show up at church? Why is it so important that I memorize your word? God, why is this, why is this so important? Do I really need all this? But then just like on those river rapid trips, you bend around the corner and all of a sudden you, you see the turbulence. And maybe initially it's, it's just some choppy water and you start to rock a little bit in the boat. You hold on to that rope a little bit tighter that's on the side. But then the rapids get bigger and bigger and you see the rocks in the water and you go, man, if I fall out, I don't know if I'm coming back up. And all of a sudden you listen for the voice of that guide and you're desperate for the voice of that guide and you're looking to him and you're, you're dependent on him going, dude, if you don't get me through this, I'm gone. Well, Christian, as, as the, the heat gets turned up to us, that, that's God's word in our lives. This is our guide. This is the voice that we need to listen to as the culture becomes turbulent, as the heat gets turned up, as push does come to shove. This is where we need to go. Just like Daniel and his three friends, they didn't, they didn't compromise. They didn't waver. They knew exactly what they needed to do. And they were convicted that God's word was true and they were gonna follow God's word no matter what. They didn't have to sit back and say, God, what's your will for me? Should we compromise on this? Should we change to keep up with the times? No, they knew what God's word was. Christian, there was a time when in our country and in our world, we could kind of sit back and say, well, the, the morals are Christian morals and the laws are Christian laws and the people have a general fear of God. That's not the case anymore. We no longer live in a country where the morals are Christian morals, where the laws are Christian laws. Talk about a lack of the fear of God. When we have people celebrating and cheering when laws are passed that allows a mother to kill her child after the child has been born, Christian, that is the country that we live in now. And if your mentality is, I'm going to kick my Christianity into neutral and just kind of coast through as maybe you could have done in generations past, well, now that, that kicking it into neutral, the currents of our culture are not going to carry you closer to Christ. The currents of our culture are going to rip you away from Christ as fast as they possibly can. And your lifeline is the word of God. You have to be anchored to the scriptures. This world is going to take you and it's going to squeeze you and it's going to press you and it's going to try to conform you into its mold. It's going to try to conform you into what it wants you to do. But Christian, we have to stand up and say, we're not going to be, as Paul said, conformed to the patterns of this world, right? That's Romans 12 too. He says, do not be conformed to this world but what be transformed, be transformed by the renewal of your mind so that by testing, you may discern what is the will of God. How am I gonna know the will of God? By the transforming and the renewal of my mind. Well, where does the transformation and the renewal of my mind take place? It takes place as I fill it with God's word. As I give myself over to the scriptures, as I study the Bible, as I put more of God's truth into my mind, as I commit more of it to memory, my mind is being transformed so that I will know what God's will is. So often I have people come to me and say, I, I just wish I knew what God's will is for my life. And I ask them, my first question is, how much time are you spending in the word? You know, we want the giant neon sign to, that says, this is the decision that you should make, or that's the decision that you should make, or this is the person that you should marry, or this is 
the job you should take. And, and that's not necessarily how it works, but we do have God's will fully revealed to, to us in his word, right? His word says what? That, that in this book is given to us everything that's necessary for life and godliness. If you want to know what God's will is for your life, start here. Don't just start here, live here. Marinate in the scriptures. Let them seep into your life and you will not have to worry about it. Because this world is going to try to tell you what to think and what to believe and how to vote and how to dress and how to look and how to think and how you should identify yourself. And this world is going to say all these things and it's going to tuck it under the, the umbrella of you need to just live your truth. But Christian, that's not your truth. That's the enemy's lie. And if you want to stand firm against that, you need to be anchored to the word of the scriptures. You need to be anchored to the word of God. You need to have yourself deeply committed to the word. You need to have that sword and trowel mentality, right? You need to have the, the, the one hand busy about the business of life while the other hand is firmly grasped on the hilt of the sword of the spirit, on the hilt of God's word, always ready to bring it to bear, always ready to bring it to your defense as you need to encounter and combat the lies of the enemy. This culture, Christian, is working against you. And if you want to stand firm, you must know the will of God. And to know the will of God, you must know his word. It's one of the reasons why we have CBI. The, the verse, that's our theme verse for Compass Bible Institute is Ephesians 4.12, that we exist to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ until, it continues in verses 13 and 14, until we attain to the unity of the faith and to the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, verse 14, with the results that, so that, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Christian, this world is filled with different doctrine and human cunning and schemes. And if you want to be able to stand firm, you must stand firm with the scriptures anchored in God's word, knowing God's will by knowing his word. But you know what's fundamental to God's will? Paul talks about it in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, and he, he does so under the, uh, the subject and heading of, of sexual purity, but it applies in a more general sense too, because he says this in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. He says, this is the will of God, your, what's the next word? Sanctification. That's a, a word that means that you should be more holy that you should be more like Jesus. God's will for you fundamentally Christian is that you would be more like Jesus. That's Romans 8, 28, right? And 29. For God causes all things to work together for your good. And we love that verse, but we don't always love the fact that we don't get to define good because God's done that for us in verse 29. Because Paul goes on to say, the good that he's working for is that you would be conformed to the image of Christ, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. See, God's will for your life is that you look less and less like this world and more and more like his son. That you would be more and more godly, more and more holy, more and more Christ-like. And fundamental to that is our not just knowledge of the word, but obedience to the word. See, Christians, if we know the word but don't obey the word, we've short-circuited God's purpose for the word. If we know the word but don't obey the word, then we don't really know the word at all. And so we should be not surprised then when we look at Daniel and, and we've seen he's got this robust knowledge of the word and, and it overflows into an, an obedience of that word. Pick back up in, in verse eight. He resolves that he would not defile himself with the food or the wine. Therefore, he acted. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself 
And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my Lord, the king who assigned your food and your drink for why should he see that you were in worse condition than the youths who are of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. Then Daniel said to the steward whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, test your servants for 10 days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. So they act. They know God's word. They know God's will. And then they act upon that. And they go to the chief of the eunuchs. They go to one of the most powerful men under Nebuchadnezzar, his most powerful servant. And they say, hey, look, we're going to ask that you would allow us not to defile ourselves by eating the king's food. Again, this was putting their life on the line. Remember their circumstances. They're effectively prisoners of war here. Yeah, they're in the, the king's service, but they're not there willingly. They can't leave. They're captives. They've been ripped away from their home, ripped away from their family. They're in this Babylonian training program, which was, albeit a, a, a reprogramming regimen, that Nebuchadnezzar's goal was to transform them into being faithful little Babylonians and, and to purge them of any vestiges of their former identity as Israelites, including their relationship to the God of Israel. Nebuchadnezzar didn't want anything to do with that anymore. So they were there, they were in this program, they were beholden to one of the king's most powerful servants who had the ability, if he wanted, to just dispose of them, dispatch of them. Not only that, but they're looking around, seeing all of their peers just give in. Saying, when in Babylon, be like the Babylonians. Perhaps, and this is reading between the lines, but perhaps they're even looking at Daniel and these three going, why are you rocking the boat? Why are you making things harder for us in our culture? Why don't you just kind of go with the flow? Just be a Christian or be, not be a Christian at this time. Be a, be a God-fearer, but be a God-fearer in, in private. Don't be so public with your faith. Not only that, but to push back on this chief steward was ultimately to push back on Nebuchadnezzar himself. So we see that, that they're in a difficult situation and yet they don't flinch. That doesn't change God's will for their lives. And they knew that. They knew that God's will and God's word are not dependent upon our circumstances. But that his will is the same for us no matter what at all times. And that is that we would foundationally obey him and submit to him in every way. And so he asks the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. But verse 10, the chief of the eunuchs knows how dangerous this is. And he says to Daniel, I fear my Lord, the king who assigned your food and your drink. For why should he see that you are in worse condition than the youths who are of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. Daniel wasn't just risking his own life. He's risking the, the, the servant's life as well. And the servant's saying, I'm, I'm not going to do this because if the king comes back and sees that you three are withering away, he's going to come after me. I'm going to die. Daniel gets creative then and proposes this test. The Daniel plan, if you will. He says, test your servants for 10 days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. Again, obedience. Daniel's refusing to compromise. He's saying, we're gonna obey God. He gets objections. He gets roadblocks thrown in his way and he still continues to persist and say, no, I'm going to obey God. Man, if I'm gonna get 
creative on anything. It's not going to be creative on how can I compromise. It's going to be, I'm going to get creative and how can I still be faithful to God? I need to obey God no matter the cost. He does not flinch. He does not compromise. But instead, he proposes this plan. And here, I think with this plan, we see another evidence of God, Daniel's knowledge of God, of his knowledge of the word. Because here's the reality, y'all. If you spend 10 days eating vegetables and drinking water, you're not going to be found fatter than anything. This is not a diet plan to lose weight. In fact, as we find out later on, this has the opposite effect on them. And so what Daniel's doing is Daniel knows that he serves a faithful God who is the God over all of creation, the God of the universe, and that this God is able to honor his obedience. And so knowing God fueled his obedience. Knowing God's character, that God is good, that God is powerful, that God is sovereign, allowed Daniel to say, you know what, we're going to obey no matter what. And so he proposes this. Again, this is not 7th century BC Weight Watchers. This is not the Whole Foods diet, Whole30, whatever that is. This is not that. This is them saying, God, we're going to trust you. And this is a way that we can stay obedient to you. So we're going to choose to stay obedient to you this way. And we're going to let you deal with the outcome, God, because we're going to trust you no matter what. To everyone watching, this would have seemed like an insane test. And I think that's why the steward agrees to it. Because he's thinking to himself, probably, okay, at the end of 10 days, they're going to be looking pretty bad. And I'm going to be able to say, well, you failed. So here's the food from the king's table. Just eat this and be happy. And so he agrees to it. But again, Daniel knew that God had done amazing things in the past. Daniel's knowledge of the word fueled this boldness in his life. Because he knew the word, which allowed him then to know God, he was able to say, you know what, I'm going to obey God because God is bigger than the situation that I find myself in. God is able to be faithful if I am faithful in my obedience to him. He can, he can honor that. He can do far above and beyond all that we ask or imagine, right? I don't think Daniel was quoting Paul for obvious reasons, but at the same time, it's the concept that he's doing. That's what he's driving at here. And so he remains bold. Point number two this morning is this, y'all. Know God's word to obey God boldly. Know his word to obey God boldly. Not just to know his will, but then to obey his will. There was no flirting, no compromise, no second guessing with these. They were just like the 40 those 40 martyrs, they said, we know what, what, what we're going to do. We're not going to bow the knee to Caesar. We're going to take our spot on the ice. That, that's Daniel and his three friends. They're saying, hey, look, we're not going to compromise. So here's a plan. We're going to ask, if you, will you do this 10-day 10, 10 plan? They didn't know that the steward was going to say sure. They didn't know the outcome of that, but they knew that this was going to keep them obedient to God. And if this is, had resulted in them being thrown into the furnace, they would have gone to the furnace but they're boldly obeying God because they know God. Christian, when we face tough circumstances in life, we can't allow circumstances to lead us into compromise. We've got to guard against rationalization. Thoughts of, well, if I don't go to that family party and drink with them, that they're going to they're gonna judge me. They're, they're going to hate me. They're not going to want me around. They're going to think that I'm judging them and they need Jesus, so I might as well go and drink, even though it is against my convictions. Or maybe you think, you know, if I don't pad my numbers at the end of this quarter for my boss, he's going to look at my performance and see that I'm not doing too well. And so I need to pad my numbers, my stats, even though that's deceptive, because if I don't, I'm going to lose my job. And after all, I need to support my family. So God's going to be okay with my compromise here. Or man, if I 
share the gospel with my neighbor or mention Jesus to my neighbor, they're not going to like that. And I just moved into the neighborhood and I really don't want to start off on a bad foot with my neighbor. So I'll just, I'll just lifestyle evangelism people for a while and hopefully somebody will get saved because I'll smile at them. We can't allow our circumstances to lead us into compromise when God is clear on what we need to do. We need to boldly obey the Lord, but to boldly obey the Lord, we need to know the word and, and, and in knowing the word, we need to know our God. Christian, when you read the word and you do your DVR, your daily Bible reading in the morning, are you doing that to know your God more? When you read about the exodus that God led his people out of Egypt, are you aware that that's the God that you worship and that you serve today? It's the same God who loves you, the same God, Psalm 139, that formed you, that knitted you together in your mother's womb. Same God. When you read about these things about him, when you read that he is good, do you believe that he is good? When you believe, read that he's working all things together for your good, do you believe that that's true? Is that anchoring convictions in your life? When you read that he's faithful, does that embolden you to say, man, God is faithful to me. I can trust him. I can rely on him. I can hold fast to him and he is not going to fail me. See, Christian, this is so much more than just a textbook or a good luck charm. You golfers out there, right? You don't read this Bible so that your putt will drop later on in the day, right? No, you, you read the word so that you can get to know the God of the word. And knowing the God of the word, you will be emboldened to live faithfully obedient to him no matter what comes. Because you know that he is bigger than anything that you're going to face. You know that he loves you more than anyone else in this world. And you know, as Paul says in Romans 8, that he's already given his son for you. What is there that he won't give you that you need? Daniel and his three friends didn't have to get together to say, oh man, I know what God wants us to do, but whew, this is a difficult situation. No, they not only knew the word, but they knew the God of the word. And knowing the God of the word, they were emboldened to be obedient, even in the face of such difficult circumstances that if things had gone differently, they would have found themselves in the furnace. God rewards our faithfulness, Christians, when we will step out in obedience to him. And he does that with Daniel. Look at verse nine. God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. So he listened to them, verse 14, in this matter and tested them for 10 days. Again, the, the chief of the eunuchs, and his servant, they, they didn't have to listen to these four Israelite teenagers. They could have simply looked at them and said, no, eat the food from the king's table. They could have sent them to their deaths and executed them. I mean, these were not four significant lives in the eyes of, of the chief of the eunuchs. And so their lives are on the line, and yet they respond obediently, or they respond in, in, in listening to them and in agreeing to this test. And, and we have to ask, why would they have done that? Well, the answer is there in verse nine. What does it say? God gave them compassion. God gave them compassion and favor in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. That word favor is the, the Greek word, hes, the Hebrew word, hesed. I did the same thing last night. Maybe in the third service, I'll make sure that I'm not talking about Greek in the Old Testament. Might be helpful. He gave them hesed. 
Steadfast love, a favorable, kind disposition. God gave the, the chief of the eunuchs that mentality towards these four. Why? Because God was honoring their obedience. Look at verse 15 and 16. At the end of 10 days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. Y'all, here's the deal. Verses 15 and 16 tell us that this is a God thing taking place. This is a GT1 that's going on. Because you're not going to find a boxer before a heavyweight fight thinking to himself, well, I need to put on some pounds. Where's the celery? In fact, did you know this about celery? It burns more calories eating celery than celery actually provides for you. You guys are going to go home and buy some celery right now, aren't you? Don't do that. You won't survive for very long. No, but nobody's going to say, I need to put on some pounds, so let me go shop the vegetable section at the grocery store. No, you're going to be going down for the Ho-Hos and the Ding-Dongs and the Twinkies and the Tillamook chocolate peanut butter ice cream. Super specific, but maybe that's not everybody. That's the stuff you're going to be going for. And the text says that it made them fatter in appearance. You know what the word fatter means in Hebrew? Fat. In fact, sometimes it's translated plump, if you prefer. Rotund, okay? This, they were not losing weight. They were gaining weight by drinking water and eating vegetables. Some will say, well, yes, but this wasn't just vegetables. This was, the Hebrew word actually means anything that's grown from a seed. Fine. You're still not going to gain weight by eating apples and strawberries and vegetables like that. It's not going to happen. You're going to be losing weight. But we read that they grew fatter. Genesis 41, 2, we see this word. Behold, there came up out of the Nile seven cows, attractive and, here's the word, plump. Plump. Fat. Ezekiel 34.3. You eat the fat and you clothe yourselves with the wool. You slaughter the, here it is again, the fat ones. You slaughter the fat sheep, the rotund ones, the fat ones, the plump ones. And then my favorite of all, Judges 3.17, as we're talking about the word fat in the book of Judges, you probably know where I'm going with this. It says this, he presented the tribute to King Eglon, of Moab. Now, Eglon was a very fat man. Okay? So that's what the vegetables did for Daniel and his three friends. They made them better in appearance and fatter than all of the ewes that were eating the food from the king's table. Now, the food from the king's table was going to be rich, decadent, fatty food. This would have been food that would have packed on the pounds. And yet, because God intervenes and is faithfully responding and granting favor to Daniel and his three friends, again, why? Because of their bold obedience to him. Because God responds favorably to them, they pack on the pounds while remaining obedient to him and not defiling themselves with the king's food. But it wasn't just in the area of their physical rotundness that God blessed them. Look at verse 17. As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. And at the end of time, when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king spoke with them. And among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Again, read that again. And among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore, they stood before the king. And in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, every matter, he found them 10 times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in 
all his kingdom. So we're not even just talking about their peers at this point. We're talking about all of Neb's wise men, all of them. These Israelite youths, these four who had remained faithful and obedient to God were found 10 times. It's a, it's a metaphorical number there that's thrown out there. They, they were infinitely better than the other wise men. Why? Because there was something significant about them? No, but because as we look back up in verse 17, God gave them these things. Why did God do that? Because he was responding to their faithful obedience to him. He was blessing their obedience to him. He was honoring their obedience to him. He was rewarding their obedience to him. Daniel and his three friends knew God's word and resolved to follow it no matter what, and God responded to that favorably. Point number three this morning is this. Know the word to experience God's favor. Know the word to experience God's favor. Now, we don't obey in order to be blessed, but we also don't obey without understanding that God often does bless our obedience. It's okay to keep that in mind. But before we get all name it and claim it, let's zoom out for a minute and again remember the circumstances that Daniel and his three friends still found themselves in. They were still in a foreign land, away from their family, their home. They were still ripped away from the temple and the Levitical priesthood and the, the offerings and sacrifices. They, they were ripped away from that, that conduit to their relationship with God that they had grown up in. They were still away from their nation. In fact, at, at this point in time, their nation really is no more. Their nation consists of the remnant, the exiles. There is no more David. There's no more Solomon. There's no more national identity so much as Israel anymore. And, and now they're in Babylon, not knowing the rest of the story. And they're in the court of a, a ruthless ruler who could have executed them if the wind changed direction. And they're still there beyond all of that against their will. They're still captives. So God's favor doesn't always look like what you and I want his favor to look like in our lives. We don't get to define, God, this is what your favor should look like for me. God gets to define what his favor looks like for us. And for these four, what that looked like is that they were able to live and that he equipped them to be used by him for his glory. It's not as though God's favor in their lives looked like them driving around in 7th century Maserati chariots and getting a palace, each of them, for themselves. Christian, God's favor in your life doesn't always look like not suffering. God's favor in your life doesn't mean that you won't get COVID. God's favor in your life doesn't mean that you won't lose your job. His favor in your life doesn't mean that your marriage won't have rocky patches. God's favor in your life doesn't mean that all of your kids will be Christians. God's favor in your life doesn't mean that you won't be diagnosed with cancer. God's favor in your life doesn't mean that your bank account will always have the zeros behind the first number that you want it to have. That's not God's favor. God's favor, Christian, at times may mean that you don't come out of the furnace. God's favor may mean that you don't walk out of the lion's den. 
So what does God's favor mean? Well, it means this. God knows where you are, who you are, what you are there for, and he's using you for his glory. God's favor, Christian, is far more about God's glory than your comfort. God's favor is about God's agenda, not your agenda. Think, Christians, about the, the, the men in, in, in the characters in Scripture who God was clearly favorable towards. And then think about the context that they found themselves in when he was favorable towards them. So often it was in the midst of trial and suffering. Daniel, Hananiah, Azariah, Mishael, these four, think about the suffering that they would endure. Those three, Hananiah, Azariah, Mishael, or maybe Rakshak and Benny, if you know the, the VeggieTales version, they went into the furnace not knowing they would come out of the furnace. Daniel went into the lion's den not knowing he would come out of the lion's den. Or think about Joseph, a man certainly who God's favor rested upon, and yet look at Joseph's life, sold into slavery by his brothers, betrayed and, and falsely accused by Potiphar's wife, left in prison by the baker and the cupbearer after interpreting their dreams. And yet God was favorable throughout all that to Joseph. Or think about Job. We read about the suffering of Job, and yet Job was a man who also knew God's favor, even in the midst of his suffering. And without the suffering of Job, we never get the statement from him that says the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Still what? Blessed be the name of the Lord. Or think about Paul. Certainly a man who knew God's favor. And yet, have you read 2 Corinthians 11 recently? In Paul's resume of suffering, being beaten with rods, being stoned and left for dead, being shipwrecked a night and a day on the sea, receiving three times the 39 lashes from the Jews, the, the, the intense flogging and beating. And yet, we wouldn't argue, would we, that Paul didn't know the favor of God? Or even what we're studying right now in the book of Acts, as Pastor Mike will, will pick up again with us next week, the, the story of Stephen. Did Stephen know the favor of God? Yes, of course he did. But Stephen doesn't get back up after he's stoned. See, Christian, the favor of God doesn't always mean that our life is comfortable or good but it means that God is using us for his glory, his agenda, his purposes, and that's better. That's better than my glory, my agenda, and my purposes. See, the problem with the name it and claim it gospel that's out there, prosperity theology, isn't that they expect too much from God, but they expect such cheap trinkets from God. When God has so much better for us, if we will be faithful to him, knowing his word, knowing his will, obeying him boldly, and experiencing his favor. The question, again, when push comes to shove, is are you going to be found standing with the Lord? 
And here's the thing, I would hope and pray that all of us as Christians would hope to say, yes, I will, of course, I will, I'm gonna be there. Man, if I was there with the 40 martyrs, there would have been 41 martyrs because I would have been out on the ice too. And yet, here's my question, Christian, are you investing in this now? Are you deepening your convictions in the word of God now? Are you sinking roots deeply into this book now? Because if you're not now, you're not gonna be ready then. Martyrs aren't made overnight. It's a life that has been immersed in God's word, that has been convicted on the, the truth of who God is. It's a mind and heart that has been filled with the character and the goodness and the sovereignty of God that enables you and emboldens you to say, I'm going to live faithful to him come what may. It's that mentality that allows you, like in Daniel 3, which we didn't talk about and I didn't preach this morning, but Daniel 3, when those three stand before Nebuchadnezzar and Nebuchadnezzar says to them, hey, maybe you didn't hear what I said, but when you hear the music, fall down and worship the statue. And they look back at Nebuchadnezzar and they say this to the king. They say, king, we don't need to answer you in this matter. We don't need to open our mouths to you. You don't deserve an answer from us. This is basically what they're saying there, but we'll give you one anyways. The God that we serve, King, he is able to deliver us from this furnace. The one that was heated so hot that it killed the men that were carrying those three in to throw them in eventually. He's able to save us from this furnace, but he will deliver us from you. Even if we don't come out of the furnace, King, you haven't defeated us. We've been delivered from you. That's why Paul can say in prison to die is what? gain. Y'all, if we want that mentality, it comes from immersing ourselves in God's word, knowing it, knowing his will, obeying him boldly, and knowing that the favor that he will show us is ultimately going to re result in his glory, which is better than anything else this world could offer us. Let's pray together. Father, we are truly thankful we are grateful that you would be so kind as to give us your word, to give us the scriptures, to give us the Bible, to, to reveal to us through the pages of your word that you are good, that you are sovereign, that you are loving, and that you are kind, Lord, that you are working all things together for our good, even when we are in the valley, Lord, that is true. When we are on the mountaintop, God, that is true. When we are experiencing triumph in our life, God, that is true. When we are facing tragedy in our life, that is true, Lord. You are good. You are sovereign. God, I pray that we would be a church that is deeply rooted in that conviction. God, I pray that we would be a church that knows your word, that we would be a church that's saturated with your word, not just to check a box and, and to say, this is how many times I've read through the word over the last 13, 14 years. But no, to say, this is how much I know my God because I've been in the word. God, I pray that your word would have its, its, its true intended impact in our lives that would be to, to conform us more and more to the image of Christ, which is it's doing that, God, then we are gonna be boldly obedient to you no matter what comes our way, no matter what opposition we face, no matter what, who is in the Oval Office or who is in the Governor's Office, God, we will remain faithful to you. Nothing has changed. Nothing has changed. Kings come and kings go. Rulers come and rulers go. Your word remains forever. And what you have called us to do, the thing that you want from us has not changed. 
no matter the administration, we are to serve and follow you and to be obedient to you and to trust you and to know that you are sovereign over everything in our lives, God. Lord, fill us with your word. Fill us with the knowledge of you and who you are and all the good things that you have done for us through giving us Christ and all the good that you have in store for us in eternity with you so that we will live here as aliens and strangers as Peter calls us to, not surprised by a fiery trial when it comes to us, Lord, but knowing that this is but temporary, as Paul says. And any affliction that we experience here, Lord, is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory and we long for that day, but Lord, help us to stand firm now here God, we may never have to join the ranks of those that walked out onto the ice like those 40 martyrs. But if we do, God, I I pray that we would be ready for it. And if not, God, I, I pray that whatever pushback we do encounter here, that we would stay faithful to you because we know your word, we know who you are, and we are gonna stay immovable, obedient to you. God, be favorable to us in response, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. 